this is even before I suggested that that might be the way that I wanted to go. You're not doing theatre. Keep it as a hobby. The pangs I had walking to the College of Law as it was at the time, and I had to walk past RADA. I can't tell you how scary it was to, to not have a pram in front of me. The stress and strain of actually uh, running the theatre company is not enough to stop me from wanting to do it, no. Hi, I'm Claire, founder of Open Stage Arts Drama and Singing Classes for Adults. Lots of the adults who come to our classes and online For this episode, I'm chatting with Tara Legacy, who loved drama activities at schools in Oxford and Trinidad. But put the performing arts to the side and part way through her university career. So I've decided to find out more. Thankfully, she took a brave step later in life and returned to the theatre and is now an actor, director, producer, musicians and more that have found or refound their creativity later in life. For this episode, I'm chatting with Tara L. Lacey, who loved drama activities at schools in Oxford and Trinidad, but put the performing arts to the side partway through her university career. Thankfully, she took a brave step later in life and returned to the theatre and is now an actor, director, producer and an educator. Hi, Tara. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Tell me what your refound creative passion is. Hmm, okay, so uh, my refound creative passion, in umbrella terms, is is performing. I act, I direct, I self-produce. I am also involved in theatre and education now as well through, I suppose, historical role play and with another company that I uh, manage called Shake the History Tree. But I started my own theatre company around 2011 called Peppered Whip Productions. And so through that, I have been performing, producing, travelling with the shows that I'm involved with. So it's performing mainly. Fabulous. Love it. What was your experience of the arts like as a youngster? Well, I can probably put that into several categories. My first exposure was when I was at primary school and I was a a convent girl. And we used to do once a week a lesson called speech and drama. And speech and drama probably uh, has a number of meanings to many people. But for us in uh, convent school where we weren't allowed to sing except at Christmas, speech and drama actually meant miming. And it mainly was about reinterpretation of of fairy tales and I absolutely adored this subject and was very very happy when I finally got an A in speech and drama I think it was my last year at primary school but the nuns were quite strict so you know they weren't giving us any uh, any plaudits if we didn't necessarily deserve them so that was my first experience of, um, of of the dramatic arts if you like and we used to do choral speaking as well every Christmas in the church and I used to love that they used to split us up into light and dark voices and we used to tell uh, the, the nativity story uh, every Christmas so we, only the older kids were allowed to do choral speaking so I was very excited to be involved with that. Then when I went to high school I was at school in Oxford, Oxford High for the first couple of years and that was my first exposure to Shakespeare 
And I got a couple of leads. I was Portia in A Merchant of Venice and Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I, as many theatrical people do, and many non-theatrical people do, absolutely fell in love with Shakespeare um, as taxing as it can be sometimes. And then uh, when I was about 13, we emigrated to the Caribbean, to Trinidad and Tobago, where my mum is from. And I... uh, pretty much completed the main part of my high school education over in Trinidad and I really threw myself into the arts. It was quite a difficult period of time because even though I'm half Trinidadian I'd spent all my life over here in England and then you know obviously going over for holidays was was lovely but being part of of life in Trinidad and and having to engage fully was scary really scary so I gravitated at school towards um, theatre and um, was actually I think the first period of notoriety I think I'd call it was when I had to perform a monologue I'd had to plan this monologue for drama homework and I got up in the morning and realised I hadn't done it so I very quickly had to pull something together and decided I would uh, devise a 10 minute monologue on what it's like to have a, a winter's evening playing out in the snow in the garden which of course is 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 completely the opposite of, of many people's experience in the Caribbean. So I put this on, and and one of the the I suppose the um, idiosyncrasies of that particular performance was that as a very skinny, uh, kind of anemic thirteen uh, year old, I used to get very cold. So when I had been over here in England, I used to always wear multiple pairs of socks, pairs of tights covered with pajamas, then jeans on top, and then several layers, and you know wearing glasses. I'd experience that whole moving from the um, inside the house out into the garden and feeling your glasses steam up and things like that. So all of these things were uh, filtered into the performance that I gave, which was uh, quite riotous with its reception, to be honest. Um, So I think from there, that gave me the confidence to put myself forward for more things in Trinidad, because obviously, culturally, there are very rich, there's a very rich um, society. um, And you have influences from across the globe, from India, from Africa, from China, from uh, the Middle East, from Europe, and all of these things are are put into a melting pot and they create, again, something completely new uh, with what I would call Trinidadian culture. And so that could be a little bit intimidating, I think. But once I'd had this, I suppose, positive reception from from people um i put myself forward and i was cast in a show that we did for the national secondary schools uh, drama festival uh, jesus christ superstar and being from uh, an all girls school uh, obviously all girls had to play the parts uh, and i was cast as jesus and uh, that was quite an exciting experience. We performed it for the school first and then had invited all the boys' schools that were around to come and see it as well. So that was quite exciting. There was a bit of an embarrassing uh, moment there, which I, I could tell you about, but I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's uh, listening worth, to be honest with you. But I'll tell you anyway. So the most in, my most embarrassing moment in theatre, and it's what laid the groundwork for me being able to pretty much say that I could I would do anything for my art I think so my grandmother had whipped me up a costume 
uh, to play Jesus. And it was a sheet, as many uh, uh, people have probably had uh, costumes made from sheets before by their parents or their grandparents. So it was the Easter production, the very first time that we'd done it for school and for the, the boys' school. So the auditorium was absolutely heaving with, uh, you know, adolescence, let's put it that way three quarters of the way through the play and um, Jesus, that's me, was in front of Pilate. And uh, one of the guards, um, what they had to do was get some red lipstick, essentially, and paint some, uh, you know, whip marks on my back. So they had to expose my back a little bit to be able to see uh, the the red blood. And um, unfortunately, one of my uh, guards got a little bit overzealous with the ripping of my costume. So we are on stage and I'm kneeling in front of Pilate and obviously in huge amounts of pain um, as I was, in, you know, being Jesus and I could just hear this gasp and this silence and I was thinking what is going on and I very rapidly realized that my boob was showing in profile because obviously Jesus at 14 wasn't wearing a bra (laughs) and of course I I wasn't going to run off the stage so I you know carried on and trooped on you think well I'm gonna carry on here this is what I'm here for this is what I'm doing and um, yeah, a lot of people were quite impressed with that, that I didn't run screaming into the wings. But I think at that point, I thought, well, if my boob's been out on stage now, <laughs> I could do pretty much anything. But um, yeah, I digress. So Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> in Trinidad, um, uh, that, was, that was great. And then we took that to the national competition. Uh, we had like a semi-final and then we had the final and we did place in the final and I got an acting award for that. So that was very encouraging. Did you have a better sewn costume that time? Uh, I think my grandmother had repaired it by then. Yeah, definitely. I think the the guard was on uh, strict instructions not to be ripping the side of my costume apart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the very final year that I was at school, so what would equate to the fifth year um, when I was doing the equivalent of my O-levels or GCSEs, I was asked to step into the shoes when someone had uh, dropped out from the team that my school had put forward for their national school's uh, public speaking competition it was run by a company called Trintoc which um, was an oil company over in Trinidad because uh, being in South America Trinidad's very rich with with oil basically Um, not a rich country it's not used the money's not used particularly well I'm digressing again but um, (laughs) yes um, that's the company that sponsored it so uh, I got asked to step in after the first heat uh, for the impromptu speech so you deliver a team where you've got one person who's uh, got their prepared speech and the other one who's doing the impromptu and I said yes, not realising that the impromptu was a little bit scary. And you'd pick your number out of a hatch, which would say what, what order you would go in. And then you'd basically have to sit back and wait until the person who went before you was on stage. And at that point, you got to pick another uh, slip of paper out of a hat, which would then be the subject that you would be speaking for three minutes on. And you'd have the time that the person was on stage who went before you delivering their speech, their impromptu speech, and you would have three minutes to prepare yours and then out you go (laughs) in front of the world to deliver so it was scary but we uh we won that uh competition as well so we were the national champions that year as well so um my experience in Trinidad being involved with the arts in general oh and I was involved with music as well so I was playing the recorder at competition level um which a lot of people including my fiance when I first met him thought was quite (laughs) eye-opening contemporary recorder I I get a little bit upset when people criticize the recorder but again I digress 
So I was involved across the board, really, in the arts when I was in Trinidad. Um, it was the colour of my life. It made it made it easier to get through some really difficult times that I had. I mean, being a teenager is never easy anyway. But I had some problems with my family at that time, as many teenagers encounter, you know, to do with not just, I suppose, what we might say is is teenage culture at the time, but you know, it was it. There was also a clash of cultures, also because I was in, perceived by some as being particularly westernized. I don't think I was actually. I was quite a quiet little little thing, apart from when I was on stage. And maybe that's what appealed to me so much about the arts is the opportunity to have a voice when you might not feel that you have a voice elsewhere. From an artistic point of view, it was a very, very uh, productive period in my life. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It sounds such fun. And like you say, a really good artistic experience for you. Sadly, that all stopped when you went to university. Can you explain why and what was happening in your life during that time? Yes, absolutely. So um, before we leave Trinidad and just before I came back to England to do my A-levels, um, we had a parents' evening. They were always very exciting and uh, nerve-wracking, I'd say. So anyway, we had a parents' evening and my mum came to school and was told by my teachers that given the experience um, that I was having in the arts through theatre and public speaking, um, they thought that I was talented and that they could really see a future for me on the stage if that was the way that I wanted to go. And that was a massive red flag to my mum in particular, who pretty much freaked out and said to me, you're not doing theatre. This is even before I suggested that that might be the way that I wanted to go. You're not doing theatre. Keep it as a hobby. Even better, why don't you think about uh, jobs that you could uh, do, that you could employ your skills? I know. Why don't you go into law? And this was when I was about 16 or 17. So I wasn't really taking it too seriously, but I was very aware that she was adamant that theatre wasn't going to be for me other than as a hobby. Um, so came back to England, went back to Oxford High and did my o, uh, my A-levels. And I remember applying for universities and applying for law because that's what I'd been told to do. And I wasn't really given the opportunity to argue about it. It was more of a, this makes sense, this is what you're doing. Um, and my mum had come over to the um, UK in the 60s, on her 18th birthday, her actual 18th birthday, she came over from Trinidad, hadn't ever been abroad before. And she came over as many of the Windrush generation to study nursing. She became a nurse and uh, then a midwife and she met my dad and so didn't go back to Trinidad and, and the rest is history. And my brother and I are here to tell the tale. And I think for her, coming from a background that was quite poor and her father built himself up from sweeping floors to having his own business um, left school at 12 and taught himself so many things and achieved a lot and was able to send uh, his all five of his children abroad to study and to 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 make their way in the world um, my mum felt that myself and my brother needed to be a step up from where she was so I think she felt very concerned that we were able to look after ourselves financially and to do better than than she has done in life I mean she's done brilliantly but that's the perception I suppose like as a parent now I completely understand where she was coming from but I don't think my parents really took the time to 
listen to me. Maybe they were afraid to listen to me. I'm not sure in, in case I was contradicting what they wanted for me. But um, I don't think they really knew who I was. And fundamentally, I don't think I've changed, particularly in terms of, you know, those little bits and pieces that make up my personality and my character and what's important to me. They were all there at 16 and 17. And I think if they had listened to that, they would have known that law wasn't for me. It's one of those things that I think with my own children, I'm very keen to listen to them and try and and communicate with them in a way that means that they feel that they're being heard. And I certainly didn't feel that, but I suppressed a lot of my feelings. And I remember my teachers saying to me at the time, are you sure you want to be doing law? Are you sure this is for me, for you? Sorry. And I said, absolutely. Yes, of course. But um I knew deep down it wasn't. And when I went to university, I was seeing all of these people who had come in and chosen their courses and then were thinking, actually, no, maybe this isn't the right course for me. I think I'll choose this instead. And I looked at them in absolute awe, thinking, I really wish that I could change course. But I don't feel I can. I don't think I even have the ability to to raise this subject with my, my, my mother, particularly, because she just won't accept it. And I didn't feel, I didn't trust myself, I suppose, to make the decision on my own. So consequently, I did law. I did very well. It wasn't, you know, a labour of love. I I do get quite passionate and I'm a bit of a crusader about things, but I think I'm a little bit too idealistic for it. So I finished my degree. I didn't apply for jobs uh, in the legal profession and I didn't go for uh, law school at that point because it wasn't something that I'd wanted to do. I felt like I'd achieved what my mum had wanted me to do and then I was going to try and deviate at that point so I went and and did some PA work for uh, London Underground and the Jubilee Line Extension Project as it was at the time but I encountered quite a lot of uh, I suppose misogyny in in that environment and I decided that I did not want to stay uh, where I was working and then started looking for jobs, um, paralegal work, really, uh, and then thought that I will go to law school after all, because there's nothing else. There's no other options for me. And I got a paralegal position and then I went on to law school. And I can't tell you the pangs I had walking to the College of Law, as it was at the time. And I had to walk past RADA that was behind the College of Law to get to the... And I, I, at that time, I had moved away from the arts, but there was still something deep inside me that panged every time I walked past RADA thinking, that's a road untravelled. And that hurt, I think. To pursue my legal career, I had to shut down the creative side of me uh, to leave room for the, I suppose, the the methodical and the analytical, I, I really just shut down the creative side. So where I'd been quite a prolific writer, that went. And, and when I went to university, just going back a little bit, um, I the first year I was there or the first term I was there, I did join the uh, Drama Society. But then I met my husband-to-be and I pretty much stopped all the theatre stuff. He wasn't a theatre person and he wasn't particularly encouraging. And I think I was just at a time in my life where there were other priorities that seemed to be more important at that time. So yeah, the stage was uh, boxed in some way. 
And then after my legal career, I, I and it's it's a long time ago now because my eldest is 20. So I stopped, I think, uh, in 2000 practicing because I was on maternity leave. And then we moved from Hertfordshire back to Oxfordshire. And yeah, I, I started raising my children and I ended up, well, well I had my son and then uh, three years later I had another son. And then two years after that, I had a daughter. So, and in between then I had three miscarriages as well. So it was a, a quite an emotional, intense decade, I suppose, where the family uh, took priority. So theatre was then far removed from my existence, but you know, I wasn't happy, I suppose. There were lots of reasons why I wasn't happy. I didn't have a particularly happy marriage. Um, It was quite fraught, to be honest with you. And I think whilst I was engaged in raising the children, for the most part, that's where my love bloomed. And that's, that's where I put all my energy into my children and my relationship with them and raising them in, in the way that I thought was, was best with my ex dipping in now and again. But Towards the end of our marriage, um, when it was particularly difficult, um, my ex-husband pretty much goaded me into uh, joining a local amateur dramatics group. And he said, you know, you might as well. You always said you were good at this. Go on then. So I did because I felt like I was losing my footing in terms of the marriage and the relationship. And I thought, no, I need to do something for myself. And I think my eldest was probably about gosh eight at the time so my youngest would have been about two and I had lost all my confidence I didn't know who I was aside from being the children's mum and being a wife and it was a very very scary experience for me one that I had to really push myself into and it wasn't comfortable it wasn't comfortable at all but I'm so glad I did it because it shaped the last decade of my life. If you've heard me banging on about the Creativity Found Collective on this show, but are still not sure what it is or if it's right for you, why not jump onto a one-to-one online coffee chat with me and we can talk about your small business and how the Creativity Found promotional and networking membership could help you and your enterprise to thrive. Visit creativityfound.co.uk slash join us or click on the link in the show notes to sign up and book a date and time for us to get together. See you soon. Crikey. So how did you do it? You've mentioned that it came from quite a negative place. Mm. Knowing you now, I know it turned into a very positive thing. Yes. How did you how did you put that return to theatre into action? So, yes, as I mentioned, we were at a difficult place in our marriage and my ex-husband, without getting into too much detail, had basically said he didn't know what he wanted anymore. And by this stage, we'd been together almost 20 years. So not married for 20, but been together since university. So um, I I think that really was like a, a, a massive splash of cold water over me to to try and, and and find who I was again because I was thinking well my security base is completely you know being obliterated here I, I need to find some ground that's mine um, so he, he did he said well you've always talked about theatre why don't you go and join something because clearly you're not happy so I did 
and um, I got in contact with Banbury Cross players. And the first time I went, it was lovely because they had somebody over from a, another theatre company leading a, a musical session where they were singing and they had a keyboard there. And and I really enjoyed that. That was a really nice introduction for me, actually. It, it put me in my comfort zone because, you know, you can get in your little zone and sing and not worry about anybody else. Because I think for me at that point, actually um, facing people, looking them in the eye was a real problem for me. I think because there was there was lots of emotional issues in my marriage and I was at an ebb which I I was unrecognizable to myself now just from the point of view of just lacking total confidence in 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 anything about me um so being into this in this situation where I was just in the zone and singing and I didn't have to talk to anybody but I was there was a real triumph um and then subsequent Tuesdays I I I I went along and there were one or two people that were very welcoming and others, you know, you just feel like you've joined a group and, and everybody knows everybody else and everybody knows what's going on. And you just feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. And I think there would have been lots of opportunities for me to just say, do you know what? I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not even sure I ever could. And that's where I was in my head. I'm not sure that I ever could do this theatre thing. Could I act? No, uh, no, that, you know, that was, that was when I was a kid people were just nice to me you know um, not that I'm saying I'm amazing now but what I am saying is that you know you kind of have a way of coloring the past and thinking maybe it wasn't the way that I remembered it so I, I kept going along and gradually I got involved in you know performing and I think I was there about um, four or five months and I auditioned for the first uh, show which was a pantomime um, but I, I got the part of the princess and I had to sing and I got to act again and that was a real it was lovely it was really lovely to be pulled back into uh, the midst of, of performance and I think very quickly I found my feet in terms of it, being comfortable it was an escape even though maybe the idea of it being an escape or it, it could be perceived as a negative one for me it was a very positive one because of all the turmoil that was going on in my personal life it was it was a comfortable place to be eventually and I got to actually start striking out on my own not only exploring what I liked how I wanted to deliver something, how I wanted to present something, but also how I wanted to present myself to the outside world. I can't tell you how scary it was to to not have a pram in front of me. It was my comfort blanket, the kids and and I say the pram, but the kids were my comfort blanket and I didn't have them there. And so that that was scary. But moving from that place of not knowing who I was to to actually starting to remember who I was and to find out new things about me. Banbury Cross Players helped me do that. And I'm hugely, hugely thankful for having that opportunity. I love sharing my guests' stories with you, but podcasting isn't cheap. There are hosting fees and software costs, tech to buy and time to invest in planning and editing to make sure the guests sound great and listeners hear the best content. If you'd like to financially support Creativity Found, please visit ko-fi.com slash creativityfoundpodcast. Going from one extreme to the other then, Tara, it's wonderful that you had, you found that strength to push yourself to stay with the players. You 
you were on the committee with the players and you were chair for a while um, and you started Peppered Wit. So you've obviously gone on leaps and bounds. Tell me a bit about how Peppered Wit developed over the years, how being on the committee of of the players helped maybe move that forward. Mm, yes, okay. Um, so I probably was with Banbury Cross players maybe a couple of years and I was asked to stand for the committee, which I did. And I took it as a huge learning opportunity because I knew absolutely nothing. So I was with them for on the committee for two or three years. And then I was asked to stand for chair. Um, and I did. And I was delighted to be elected. And I spent a year being vice chair and learning from um, from the, the chairman. And he was very willing to share his insights and, and to be approachable. Um, and then I spent two years as chair and then another year as vice. And then I stepped down. So I had probably, gosh, I'd say one, two, three, four, five or six years on the committee at Banbury Cross Players. And I learned a lot. And it was at a time of great change for the Banbury Cross Players because they'd always been, I suppose, not resident, but yes, resident at the Mill Arts Centre. And there was a lot of structural changes going on and managerial changes going on. I was involved uh, with the changing relationship and the renegotiation of the relationship between Banbury Cross players and the mill which was difficult at times because of of history but um, was was positively handled and taught me a lot I think in terms of diplomacy so I, I spent that time with with Banbury Cross players and and on the administrative side and we'd started to talk about festivals and the possibility of going to the Edinburgh Fringe. I'd been involved with a small group that had re-entered the Oxfordshire Drama Network Festival after a 20-year gap um, and we'd done very well and, and won an award. But there was disagreement about uh, what sort of production should go uh, and I think at that point I decided that I'd quite like to do it anyway and it was from that decision that Peppered Wit uh, came about. Myself and uh, probably about four or five other actors that I'd known through Banbury Cross Players started Peppered Wit and we uh, had one of us write a play, which wasn't a particularly great play, I have to say, and that was probably what the players disliked in the first place but that's fine you know we live and learn um but the point about it is that that decision to take that play to edinburgh started peppered wit and um started a whole new learning curve for me personally and it wasn't great as I said um I think our lowest review was probably a, a three no probably a two star actually but the point was it was proper Edinburgh fringe fair um bit inappropriate lots of rude jokes quite shocking uh, there was there was an there was room to act in it you know it wasn't just rubbish there was room to actually get to grips with some some meatiness in the play but overall it wasn't great but that aside it was a huge baptism of fire for us and if i think about it in terms of the fact that in our first year of existence which was 2011 to 2012 you know we actually had a, a full blown tour and ended up in edinburgh in our first year of existence that was quite something i had a huge amount to learn and a lot to do it was it was a full time job really and as i mentioned the play not being great we had to learn to deal with 
criticism. And I think uh, having only been back in theatre at that stage for about four years or so, it was interesting. Yes, it was. Um, you 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 learn to overcome the personal slight from the critiques and understand that you know somebody's feelings about something is are theirs and they're personal and of course they're absolutely entitled to to say how they feel but that doesn't mean that you have to deviate from your path you can continue doing what you're doing quite happily and come to terms with the fact that somebody else might not like it for us that probably fostered part of our ethos which for peppered wit which is about eliciting some sort of response the whole purpose for us for doing theater is is to bring something to our audience a question to our audience for example which elicits an emotional response or an intellectual response from them if they don't care one way or the other, we failed. But if they love it or they hate it or they, you know, then, then we've achieved something. And, and that's part of why we do what we do. Um, so we've had quite a few projects since then. I think we did Awkward in 2012. Then we did The Collector. The Collector was a brilliant show, actually. It was a two-hander, full-length play, two-hander, about uh, based on the novel by John Fowles about the undergraduate who is stalked and kidnapped and then kept as a captive in a, in a cellar of the person who abducted her. And then it's about their relationship, if you can call it that. The play was so brilliant because it was it really got the audience to question where their sympathies lay. You might automatically think that you you know, it would be with the with the with the person that's been abducted, but because you're you're putting a microscope literally onto each of these characters, people's sympathies were moving, you know, from left to right all the way through the play. It was it was a really exciting project to be on and and very intense. 2019, we toured with a show called The Wasp uh, by Morgan Lloyd Malcolm, and that was another two-hander. We kind of like our two-handers, actually. Quite intense. Women in the arts. It was two women um, and a real shocker uh, dealing with bullying between girls, um, how deeply and intensely that can affect somebody and wreak havoc on their life. That particular play was um, full of, of twists and turns and you never really had a handle on it, even if you thought you did, right up until the end, which was just the sort of play that Peppered Wit liked to do. Perfect. I was wondering whether the nitty gritty part of putting on a production and running a theatre company and trying to make ends meet, whether that detracts from your enjoyment or passion for the actual theatre making. Absolutely not. Um, I the Finances are, are, are difficult, I mean, for everybody at the moment. And I know that a lot of artists are finding it very difficult to make ends meet. As it was, we were self-producing anyway, and we have found it very difficult to uh, make a profit from what we do. Um, so part of that is the way that I think it's how difficult it is to get funding in the first place and when you're not involved with new writing as well that's an extra financial burden the licensing side of things as well um, we're certainly at a stage where we're wanting to try and get some funding because it's it's very very difficult to see a future where we continue to self-produce and we continue to put in the finances 
and and not be able to recoup everything that we've put in that's that's you know very difficult and and not a scenario that can continue indefinitely so i will park that on one side and that's what happens when you're in the theater i think we do all the admin and we do the deal with the finances and how things are going to work but when we get into the rehearsal room when we get onto the stage that's all parked and the real reason for why we're there what we're actually trying to achieve, the, the the picture that we're trying to present to people, the experience that we're trying to give to an audience, that's what takes priority. And if I'm not involved with anything like that, I do feel quite empty, to be honest. I mean, certainly during this period of lockdown, I've been uh, looking for alternative ways to express creativity. But if I'm not involved in something, I get quite down I think and I don't realize it until I'm right in the midst of feeling really down and then you think oh what's missing oh yes there's no theater ah but um yes the the the, the stress and strain of actually uh running the theater company is not enough to stop me from wanting to do it no good <laughs> that's perfect speaking again of needing to be doing it we're in January 2021 now so obviously you've been through 2020 but how have you managed and what projects have you got going on now my best friend she very sadly lost both of her parents over the space of about 20 years to cancer and she is a writer she's a journalist but she has written her first play during the period of time that her dad was going through his illness. She used writing as a form of catharsis and a way to process everything that was going on. She's such a strong and amazing woman, and I love her very dearly. And she had written this play and she asked me to read it, and it's very, very good. And she had said to me, I would love you to take this with Peppered Wit to Fringe. And we just started to speak about this. And then obviously we went into lockdown and we had to try and work out a way of producing this play without being able to be together. And so we quickly decided that um, because she had some contacts with animators across the globe, we had a bit of a brainstorming session on what about if we produce this play as an animation? And so that's what we're doing. That's been our project for the last little while. I cast the voices and we have voiced it. My fiance is a sound engineer, so he was has been able to do um, all the sound. He's actually written some of the music for it as well. Um, I also got him to voice act as well, which he was a little bit resistant to, but he's actually very good. We've started working with these amazing animators um, to put together this this show. And the interesting thing about this show is it's not a it's not like a an animated story. It's actually an animation of a theatre production. So these um, they've the, these animators have produced drawings for each of us that they've actually based on us. So we spent a lot of time rehearsing over Zoom, as you can imagine, as so many people have done just recently because we're not completely finished yet in order to put this animation on stage the animators have actually built they've built a theater in miniature the story is centered around um a a, a group of, of of cancer sufferers who meet in a um in a village hall and our animators have actually built one 
and it's you know it, it, it's it's fitted out with little lights it's got a lighting rig in there it's got a set in it. it's it's amazing it's absolutely stunning so this is what we've been involved with and we're now at the point where we're looking for platforms we we are wanting to premiere it for ourselves and we could do that but we're also looking for uh short film festivals and potentially fringe festivals if they have because that's that's where that's what Pepperwit does. It does fringe festivals. That's what we have done a lot of. So whether there are fringe festivals with digital platforms coming up for 2021, this is where we're at at the moment. And this is what we've been busy doing and busying ourselves with. That is so cool. That's really an exciting project. What other plans do you have going forward? Well, I'm on the board of trustees at The Loft and um, um, they invited me to join them about 18 months ago. And there's a lot of... Um, knowledge on that board the uh, loft theatre in Leamington is coming up for 100 years next year 100 years young next year Uh, there's lots of people that once they finish their professional careers from the BBC from the RSC that have joined the loft theatre and there's an immense amount of knowledge and so I'm really soaking that up at the moment I've started teaching uh, home educated children theatre skills as well so around September time I answered a call out uh, from an Oxfordshire home educating group and so I've been teaching theatre and drama since September outdoors when we were able to but on zoom for some of it it's really good to be able to see them blossom from some of those children have been so shy and watching them move from not being able to say hello to you on the very first day that they see you to then actually being excited to be in the class and and exuberant and and contributing with their ideas it's 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 absolutely wonderful to to behold so I've been involved with that too in terms of my plans for the future my dream is to have my own small venue my own theatre venue um it's so expensive to perform, um, and particularly when you're self-producing. Well, even if you're getting funding, it's expensive. Um, but venues need to be able to keep going as well. I'd really like to be able to give opportunities to those that don't think that they would be able to, to put their own shows on. And I would really love to be able to break down some of those boundaries between the amateur circuit and the, the professional circuit as well, because I think that there is a big wall there which I think could be could 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 afford to be chipped away at a little bit I love to be able to give opportunities to people that didn't think that they could have them so whether they're teenagers who enjoy theatre but don't know how to move forward with it or you know giving the opportunity to young people to go and and see shows or to even awaken something in them that gives them that desire to want to be involved in something creatively you know those I think are are, are quite um, significant goals for me for the future Peppered Wit are really keen and I am personally really keen to collaborate in whatever way I can and pretty much anything artistic to be honest with you um it, it I think it comes from that whole um ethos of not having any boundaries and not in a bad way just creatively um we are on all the usual platforms we're on uh, Facebook search for Peppered Wit Productions you can find us there we're on Instagram as well uh, Peppered Wit we're on the interweb uh, www peppedwit.co.uk we're on twitter too peppedwit on twitter that's kind of obvious isn't it <laughs> and um, you could email me personally i'm tara at peppedwit.co.uk thanks so much tara i've loved hearing your story and 
your plans. Um, that's been really joyful and enlightening. So thank you ever so much. Oh, Claire, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I hope we get to do it again. You're welcome. Creativity Found is an Open Stage Arts production. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to subscribe, rate and review. If you would like to help fund future episodes, you can buy us a coffee. That's K-O-F-I, the online platform that helps creators receive financial support from fans of their work. Visit ko-fi.com slash creativityfoundpodcast. If you have found your creativity as an adult and would like to talk to me for future episodes, drop me a line at claire at openstagearts.co.uk. On Instagram or Facebook, follow at creativityfoundpodcast where you will find photos of our contributors' artworks and be kept abreast of everything we're up to. When I created the Creativity Found website and the collective membership, I had no previous knowledge regarding the technical aspects of making an idea into a reality, a bit like when I started this podcast. I came across Kajabi, which allowed me to build the website so that visitors can easily find the creative classes, kits or supplies they are looking for through pages that look inviting and that showcase my members' talents. Kajabi also handles the membership, my mailing list and newsletters, the online community, taking payments, and it's where I host the Creativity Found Collective online meetups. If you're interested to learn more about how Kajabi can help you run and streamline your small business, you can find an affiliate link in the show notes and receive a 14-day free trial.